Well, according to Steve Nash. Oh, <laughs> I just like to... See, we're not serious. The basketball star Steve Nash probably... I guess we'll put it in our show notes if he did, but he probably didn't come up with this. I, if he did, I would be shook. I'd be rooting for the Brooklyn Nets for the rest of the playoffs. But... Ever heard of a podcast where one of the hosts has no idea what's going on? Well, now you have. Welcome to Unprompted, the show where one of the hosts shows up completely unaware of the conversation topic for the episode. From technology to society to history, life, and more, each episode features a unique topic, and the hosts unravel the details together using nothing but their background knowledge and past experiences. Hosted by Luke Bogus and Jared Arts, we hope you enjoy today's Unprompted conversation. Yeah, this is this is really weird, Jared. This is like... Episode one all over again. But why, why is this weird? There's a reason. We have to tell the listeners. You know, guys, typically around here, it's, it's two guys. Two guys. Two guys. One of them doesn't know what's talking, going on. It's we, three guys. Do. It's, <laughs> it's three guys. Wow. We have our, our very first unprompted guest. Uh, he is one of our, our dear friends oh, for, for many so years. <laughs> Uh, and his name is Luke. Why don't you introduce <laughs> His name is Luke. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Luke. <laughs> we have uh, Mr. Shane with us, our first friend. <laughs> this is going the, terrible. The first, first friend. <laughs> first, yeah. our, our only let's friend. Just, let's just start over. <laughs> oh, that's no, I, <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. But, Shane please introduce yourself. Yeah, so... Um, my name is Shang Jay. I am uh, just a recent grad from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I studied economics and computer science. And right after I graduated, I'm going straight to Microsoft along with these two. Join the crew. Wonderful gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. We won't, all, all of our guests won't work at Microsoft, but... Uh, a significant portion might. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. But the thing with the guests that's really interesting is that, like Jerry was saying, usually one of us is unprompted and the other one brings a topic. We decided to give our guests the opportunity to bring the topic. So both Jared and I are very unprompted. I have no idea. He obviously has no idea. That's the beauty of the podcast. Even better now that we have a guest. I mean, in many ways, it's like any normal episode of the podcast. <laughs> in many ways. Yeah. But with that, we are just going to jump right in because I'm sure there's going to be lots of conversation. And so, Sheng Jay, take it away. What are we talking about today? What are we unprompted about? So, the topic of today's top, uh, podcast uh, was actually inspired by quite a few of the previous episodes that y'all have done. Mm-hmm. After like listening through um, some of the episodes that y'all have done, I've noticed like one common theme and that is game theory. Mm. And specifically coming from like the, the episode talking about the mutually assured destruction, mm-hmm. but also it also applies to the F-150 and like the electrified network versus the Tesla supercharger network. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just thought that like game theory is just, it's, it's this weird concept that's taught in economics, but it's so applicable to everyday life that I, I was wondering if we could just kind of dive deep into a little bit of the history of game theory, um, some examples of it, and also like how we could even apply it to our everyday lives. I think that sounds like an in- incredibly informative topic. <laughs> Usually it's Jared and I just bullshitting random stuff. This is going to be a very valuable conversation. Yeah. The other important thing is Shane Jay brought notes. Yes. Something <laughs> nearly never seen on this on this set. I think the very first episode I had like a big notion page of like a bunch of links and like referrals of like conversations and quotes and stuff since then. It's like Jared's like, all right, you bring the topic and I'm like, yeah man, I'll figure something out. <laughs> so I'm pumped. So yeah. you want to talk about the history and some 
like 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 what's the history give me the background so um it's actually really interesting so game theory didn't really come into research until the 1944s until uh, 1944 <laughs> <laughs> it's so many of them <laughs> <laughs> um really talking about like uh, a lot of the atomic bomb stuff uh von neumann was one of the people that first quantified a few of the things but uh, one of the earliest examples of game theory that was kind of just added into everyday literature was Plato's works. Um, so if you go into like some of his works, such as the Symposium, mm-hmm. um, he talks about, uh, I believe it was one of the battles the Athenians uh, fought. I want to say it was the, the Battle of Delium, Delium, I want to say. But regardless, the, the thought experiment that he had was essentially... Imagine you're an Athenian soldier, you know, on yeah. the on the front lines. You're you're facing down just a bunch of other city states, um, but there's like a it's a two world scenario, right? Where one world is um, your side is gonna win, but in the case of your side is gonna win, your individual contribution probably won't mean that much. The other world is your side is gonna lose, which again, that means your contribution is probably gonna be di- you're gonna be dying. Regardless of those two worlds, the best outcome for that individual soldier is to just run away and flee. Mm-hmm. If that is like the Nash equilibrium that we find within that particular soldier. Hernando Cortez actually took that lesson and used it in his conquest against the Aztecs because right when they landed, the first thing Hernando Cortez did was burn the ships that they came on. Mm-hmm because then that completely obliterated any chance of any soldier wanting to flee because they can't flee anymore. Mm-hmm. So it took away that like prime uh, you know, equilibrium point for a lot of these soldiers because they no longer have to run away because they can't. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they have to fight. Mm-hmm. So it's, it was just like a really interesting um, way of like how in the past like there have been examples of game theory that were used but nothing was actually really quantified and it wasn't until again the 1940s when people actually started putting numbers to everything um so jared you're you're just talking about how you were uh maybe delving into the real estate market i'm looking <laughs> at houses and being outbid many times being outbid putting offering way more than houses are worth and still not getting them and yeah it's uh it's a, it's a textbook example of game theory, but one thing I think Shang-Chi is the topic bringer. What, could you give us game theory in two sentences? Yeah, so... Just I, for all the listeners. Yeah, definitely, definitely for the listeners. For sure. <laughs> Certainly for, for the sure, listeners. For sure, for sure. Not for us. Uh, I think at its core, game theory is just the study of how um, economic agents interact with each other in order to choose particular ways of action to essentially maximize their own utility. Um, so, like, the classic example of this is, like, the prisoner's dilemma, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, which is, um, again, just a quick recap for the listeners. For the, for the listeners. listeners. It's, uh, it's the idea of, like, there's two prisoners, they're brought into questioning. Um, they're essentially offered a deal of, like, if you... Uh, rat the other person out you'll like be set free um but if you don't say anything and the other person rats you out you have you get like 10 years or something Mm -hmm. but if you both um 
snitch, essentially, you, you both get five years of prison. So in that case, like the, the optimal solution is for both people to actually just snitch mm-hmm. and for Lum to, uh, you know, get that Nash equilibrium of spending five years together, even though technically it's like there's more years spent between the two of them. So when you're looking at like the grand scheme of utility and the utility being like minimizing number of years of spent in prison, it'd be better if they both like didn't say anything, mm-hmm. but if they both snitch, that's in their best interest to do that. Um, but then there's like the the idea of like the iterative prisoner's dilemma. So like the iterative prisoner's dilemma is essentially if you take that exact game and play it multiple times in a row and figuring out what's like the optimal strategy. And uh, some person who that won the Nobel Peace Prize for for economics. <laughs> the Nobel Peace day, Prize for economics. The Nobel, so that's <laughs> the Nobel Prize for yeah, economics. Yeah, my bad. My bad. My bad. Sorry. My bad. Um, his last name was Nash, which is why it's called Nash Equilibrium. I forgot what his first name was. We can we could probably you know probably put, Steve, put it Steve put Nash. in <laughs> the show notes. Steve, oh, yeah, Steve, Steve Nash, Steve Nash, Nash head basketball coach. player extraordinaire in economics. <laughs> but um, he essentially like came up with came up with this idea for of like tit for tat, which is essentially like the optimal strategy for an iterative prisoner's dilemma is to choose um, the choice that the other person did in the last round. So for example, let's say like if me and Luke were playing this game and I snitched on Luke because I'm, I'm a total snitch, right? Nice. <laughs> and then, but Luke didn't, doesn't snitch. That means in the next round, I should not snitch because then if we both don't say anything, mm-hmm. we get the maximum utility. Mm-hmm. And so it's essentially looking at like historical precedents in order to um, do a lot of these things. But it's actually really interesting. Uh, one very famous application of this tit-for-tat strategy was uh, used by this guy named uh, Yul Kuang, who was... Um, this guy was just, like, absolutely incredible. He, he like, won Survivor in 2006. He's, like, a Stanford graduate. Um, he went to the Marine Corps officer school when he was at Stanford. He went to Yale Law School. Mm-hmm. And then he, uh, he's a lecturer at the FBI right now. Um, he worked for the FCC as a deputy chief. Um... He's also worked at Google, McKinsey, mm. Facebook. I think right now he's currently at Google as, like, as a senior product manager. And most importantly, though, he was uh, voted uh, People's Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive in, in 2006. So, like, we got, we got the whole package here, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But essentially, um, he used this tit-for-tat strategy in uh, his season of The Survivor and some economists like broke down the actual odds hmm. of like if at first like his because of the situation that he was in, I wasn't entirely sure what the situation was, um, but he had like a one in thirty two chance of winning, um, which is around like I think two to three percent if like my math checks out, but hmm. I'm sure it's not. But he because he used tit for tat, he pretty much whittled it down to a fifty fifty, which is absolutely insane. Mm-hmm. But, like, I'll, after just, like, seeing that, I was just, like, I just thought, like, I have to start using game theory more in my yeah. life, you know? That's fascinating. I, I mean, I'm sure, Jared, you probably heard the story of the burning ship thing. You know everything about history. Did you, did you know that story? Which, uh, oh, of Cortez, yeah, yeah. Okay, I did. Which, surprisingly, didn't come up in our episode about the <laughs> Native, pre-Columbian Native American civilizations, but yeah. I'm glad you tied that into a previous course, episode as well. I'm sure that was on your mind. Yeah, because <laughs> but, it's just, like... 
you know, so I'm a big business boy. I graduated business, business and everything from undergrad. And so, like, my immediate thought went just to, like, so many stories about how founders, you know, will start a company, be really scrappy for their very first company, sell it, whatever. Second time around, they're, you know, like, nine times out of ten, their company will crash and burn. Because it's like, you know, they throw a bunch of money at it. They have a huge padding behind them. So it's like, you know, there's so many, like, incredible startup stories where it's like people are on like their last breath like tomorrow they're gonna have to go bankrupt and then like you know all of a sudden they just like do this incredible thing and they pull it out of their ass that they raise a bunch of money or got this debt financing or whatever and they make it through so it's like it's interesting to me i guess the first thing i thought of is i think who the founder justin tv justin tan justin can whatever his name is um Founded Twitch, all that stuff. Oh, yeah. He's, like, a very good example of, like, obviously, Twitch was a huge success, sold to Amazon. But then he started a second company, and he got so much funding, basically lit money on fire, and it was a terrible, and it didn't work. It was, like, a company that had to shut down. So it's, like, it's interesting from, like, a business perspective and from, like, a, dare I say, like, privilege. It's just interesting about how, like, I don't know, when, like, when you know behind, like, in the back of your head that, like, you have something to fall back on. Mm -hmm. And, like, some padding, like, well, like, worst case scenario. Like, this isn't... Love Justin. I watch his content. He's a great guy. But it's just, like, it's interesting. That's, like, one of many examples of, like, people who found their second company or, like, maybe they find they found their company, but they have, like, really rich upbringing. And so, like, they always have, like, a mom to get the loan from or the dad to get the loan from. How just, like, less risk adverse I feel like people are. I don't know. That was the first thing I thought of was just, like riskiness and access to resources. I feel like people who have, tend to have more access to resources or something to fall back on maybe don't take as much risk. Yeah, that that totally makes sense because it's like, again, they're presented with this two-world scenario of like one where they go for the riskier thing and they have to be scrappy. They have to, you know, they have to fight and go for essentially hell in order to build their company. Or they go through like the safer route and just start, start throwing money at the problem and because it's like they think that's like the expected outcome is like a lot lower of of like I will go for this particular way, but like it won't actually work. Um, but yeah, like game theory is actually used a lot in uh, a lot of uh, business decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, like even like pivoting to what I kind of referenced to earlier, which mm-hmm. is like um, EVs. Like EVs and game theory have such a weird such an interesting interaction honestly um first from like the charging network perspective of like um there's like again like even if we look at the prisoners dilemma we have tesla on one side with the supercharger network and we also have like electrify america on the other mm-hmm. like it would it would make the most sense if both of them cooperated mm-hmm. for like the maximum amount of utility mm-hmm. and like any ev can pull up to a tesla charger and just charge their charge their you know uh Ford F-150 Lightning or something. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, like Tesla said, like, oh, we're going to make it open source. We're, we're going <laughs> to open it to everybody with yeah. Yeah, a lot of asterisk. But, mm-hmm. like, it's the idea of if they both cooperated, that would create the maximum utility for both of them plus, like, society as a whole. But it's just a much safer bet for them to not snitch in the case of the prisoners and Lama, but just wall themselves off mm-hmm. and make their ecosystem extremely you know um just put up walls against the ecosystem and only teslas can charge on the tesla network mm-hmm. um and just maximize their own their own utility even though 
the real maximum utility exists outside of that choice. Yeah, I think that this reminds me all of, obviously, I don't know, have either of you read The Selfish Gene uh, by Richard Dawkins? I don't think so. Who's a, a well-known um, biologist. Um, and The Selfish Gene is a book, um, essentially the theory uh, is related around the fact that um, we aren't individuals. Essentially, humans or, or animals are, are just um, carriers for genes. Of indivi- each individual gene is what's evolving, is what's affecting things. Um, and each individual gene is selfish and tries to maximize its own utility. And it just so happens that the configuration of our bodies with the set of genes that we have doing the things that they're doing are what settles into an organism, a single entity called a human. Um, and I think that this, um, he speaks extensively about game theory, about tit for tat. Uh, he talks a lot about what are called evolutionary, evolutionarily stable strategies or uh, uh, ESSs. Yeah, which there's tit for tat, there's tit for two tats. Mm-hmm. There's, there's like all of these different versions of like what animals play in the real world and how it works. And typically tit for tat is like the most common one. Um, but there are others that work depending on the, the other organisms in play. And I think when you were talking about the EV charging network, why that, why that brought up to me is, you know, we can look at society or, or elements of societies like businesses, just like we can look at organisms. You know, they're made up of um, cells. They're made up of their own genes and organelles in the way of business decisions, employees, um, maybe, you know, uh, what, do you, what do you call it? Uh, culture being some sort of genetic material. That is all working to maximize their own utilities. And so in the case of like Tesla and Electri America, yeah, or even your own daily life, it always makes sense to usually cooperate. That typically brings the most utility to society, but each component of society is trying to maximize their own utility, while at the same time, entire societies are trying to maximize their own utility. America is trying to maximize the utility against the Chinese, against Europe, um, whereas it'd be best if we all cooperated at all levels. But it's kind of difficult when I think each unit each agent is probably the best word to use in this example is blindly uh, chasing their own utility maximization yeah which just happens to fall into these structures that we're familiar with and i think a key word that you use there is blindly Mm -hmm. because a, a key assumption in a lot of game theory models is the idea that you don't know what the other party is going to do. Mm-hmm. Like, especially in like, the Prisoner's Dilemma, it's like two separate rooms, right? You, you, like, you make your own choice. You know that if you both cooperate, you maximize utility, but you don't know if the other person is going to be selfish or not. Mm-hmm. And especially in the case of like, foreign policy, like for mm-hmm. example, like you talk, talked about with like, China and everything. Mm-hmm. The United States government has no idea what the heck the Chinese government is going to do. Well, I mean, like, we obviously have, like, intelligence. We don't know and, for sure. Yeah, we don't know for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's a different conversation altogether. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, it's just, I think that that keyword that you used, it was blind. Mm-hmm. And that brings up, like, the question of that. There are strategies you can use. You can be aware of game theory mm-hmm. in, in your, in when you're going about your daily life. But I think that there's there's a little bit of a buzzwordiness or a buzz um, phrasiness with game theory of like we're gonna like use game theory yeah. to make decisions, and it's like 
like we mentioned, it's blind. Mm -hmm. It's you can be aware of the process and you can have these strategies like tit for tat that maximize the statistical probability of success for your given institution. But you can't, game theory is not like this like magic set of rules. Yeah. You know, <laughs> machine learning. It's, it's not machine learning. Fly, it doesn't you know? do everything. Yeah. At least, I mean, I mean, like, I don't know if, if you have a different view of that, but I think that game theory is like super interesting math and it's very applicable to all levels. But I think it's, it's so inherent to our biology and to just like general social and societal structures that it's almost impossible to actually take advantage of if that makes sense beyond just being aware of it i think though it's like if if you are aware of these strategies though like people you can't employ them and you can like increase your chances of your own personal success statistically Mm -hmm. and like an example of that is straight up again like that that survivor winner Mm -hmm. that we just discussed yul kwan he like was very aware of game theory he Mm -hmm. used it to his advantage and legitimately decreases chances of winning by, um, I mean, that's like almost 20-fold, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think it's... The, the thing that needs to really happen, though, is when you are like interacting with other agents, as you, as you so eloquently put it, um, you really can't use the words game theory. Because it's like, if you, if you let them know, like, oh, like, you know, I'm using game theory I'm, I'm and everything. Game <laughs> like, I'm gaming you. <laughs> like, that's just like, that just sounds like you're doing some, like, voodoo magic on them, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, and honestly, like, it, using game theory is like, it's almost like textbook manipulation a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And it's like, again, like, people manipulate situations all the time in order to get their own optimal outcome. But. Yeah, I think it's like, when I when I was kind of sitting here thinking about it, it's like there's a lot of implications for how we can use it in organizations and business and amongst groups of people. But it's like like a personal development perspective, like a personal perspective. It's just like it's interesting how many ways there are to employ this for yourself. Like for example, I'm about to move out to Seattle, and you are too, actually, Shang Jay, here in a few months. And yeah. It's like the easy thing to do is I have so many friends here, my family's here probably would have had a lot of job opportunities if I wanted to stay here. Mm-hmm. But it's like instead I'm burning my ship, essentially, mm-hmm. flying and moving all my shit out to Seattle yeah. and just starting new. Like I don't know what to expect, don't know who I'm going to meet, don't know where, how I'm going to grow. But it's like to force myself to grow and to force myself to mm-hmm. do better and give myself a you know better chance to grow even further and exponentially than I could here. It's like you at some point you just have to take that leap and you have to burn those ships so that you can do that. Because it's like... The easy thing I feel like in the short term would probably be just to, yeah, stay here and like not you're on, you are staying here, but <laughs> yeah. but you, you know what I mean. It's like like basically like you might be like working so like in a tech perspective it might be just like working for the company you've interned for four years and for just sure. riding the wave and sticking with your own friends and you're not really growing and you're you're obviously finding ways to grow outside of that. But like it's it's interesting about how like in life too like you can employ this in group settings, but it's like an individual setting. You have to find ways. For me, it was moving. For you, it's going to be something different. But it's like you have to find ways to continue to grow. You have to burn those ships and just like force yourself to like start new and just like push yourself to grow. I don't know. Yeah. So I use that as like a personal development. Like that's kind of what, where my mind's going with the whole game theory thing. And even something else, it's like that's like pretty applicable to like our careers as we're starting and everything. It's using game theory to negotiate salaries. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um. 
I think one of the things that has happened throughout like the tech industry like recently is like you know like the the website levels.fyi mm-hmm. like essentially levels.fyi was this uh website where um it just gathered data of people's compensation packages from across companies mm-hmm. um it's open like it's sourced from like essentially like engineers and other other positions they like log on and add their salaries their signing bonuses their stock options blah 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 and they were able to see what other people are being offered um but because of that like the one the one of the key components of game theory too is like knowledge and having knowledge of what other people are offered and everything mm-hmm. and because of that like microsoft had to significantly increase their compensation packages in the past few years because like once people were like woke about like how much essentially (laughs) money other people like other engineers are making throughout these other throughout these other um companies um that was just like a massive step towards um negotiating and maximizing utility for all Mm -hmm. that that sharing of that knowledge that sharing of um what's going on is is like a very key component within game theory that is very applicable and even then when like you are talking about like negotiating for your individual salary. Like you can see other other data points. You see you can see what your value is. Um, you can bring that information to the table, and then from there actually negotiate with the other agent, which is the recruiter or the HR team or whoever you know mm-hmm. ends up uh, fixating your compensation package. So yeah, based off that, I haven't question to pose for sure um around you know so so you mentioned things like uh, that website or across i think the the working world right now there's a there's a trend towards collective knowledge sure collective pursuits where people together are demanding things higher wages for example for microsoft or just as an industry people are sharing this even like social justice, social justice things. Yeah, information is being shared at, a, at an increasing rate, and um, there's kind of this idea. Again, um, I would say that there was a, a prevailing sense of this in maybe the 1848 and the early 20th century as well of um, bettering the collective as opposed to the individual. Um, sort of like a return to maybe a more liberal thinking. Uh, do you think that that will continue in the next? 50 years where we have you know things like increased union participation where more and more people look to maximize total utility for the population or does as it has many times in the past this move towards collectivization increases the means of many people which then causes them in some ways to turn back towards a more individual individualistic view of the world where now they have kind of what they wanted sure and it turns back to a more conservative viewpoint where you know i worked hard for this i deserve to keep it type of thing um this knowledge is my own type of thing for me i would say that the trend of collectivism will just increase steadily um it might like fluctuate up and down but there will be a general trend upwards and the only reason behind that, though, is the problems that we're facing today are collectively just getting bigger and bigger. Um, 
like before, like when we're talking about like 1940s, when when uh, you know game theory was first used in terms of like quantifiable evidence and other things, like most countries were still pretty individualistic, right? They they were like looking after themselves and all this other stuff. But now today we we're faced with issues such as like the climate crisis. We're also faced with issues such as um, like the rising threat of China and all the, all these other things. Um, because of that, just like the scale of these problems, I think uh, humanity is just going to have to will will realize the the scale of such like the scale of these problems and we'll work together in order to maximize utility. That is my take, at least. Mm-hmm. Luke, do you have thoughts before I retort? <laughs> <laughs> I actually want you to retort because I'm gonna. I'm, what I was about to say might veer the conversation. So, okay. I disagree on the basis of how humanity has responded to collective problems in the past. Sure. I think that when you look at one example, I'll, I'll look at it, is just general societal collapse. For example, the. Um, during the fall of the Roman Empire, the fall of uh, Sassanid Persia, you see large collective problems being faced in, in large centralized states where you have massive crop failure, economic breakdown, bad weather, because many, many uh, societal collapses were caused by um, climate fluctuations. Um, and instead of coming together and realizing many times there's a breakdown and a blaming. And I think we're starting to see that in some areas of society today where people will work together, countries will work together when it's convenient, but there's large sections of every country um, which are very individualistic. I think today, more than 40 years ago, more than 50 years ago. And part of that I think is the last large collective problem we faced before climate change was um, World War II was um, kind of the um, totalitarian states that we faced largely as a world together and then formed the United Nations and tried to work together. Um, I mean, what about the COVID-19 pandemic, though? This is true. This is a large... That's true. And I would... So before we can even, like... Before I want to, like, go down the avenue of the COVID-19 pandemic... Yeah, of course. Um, I, I, I think one other key difference is the proliferation of information and mm-hmm. data. Because it's just like, if if I'm able to actually understand what's going on the other side, because mm-hmm. it's like the idea of like, um, at least in like the software engineered level of levels, FYI, you, you understand the compensation packages of mm-hmm. software engineers across or just product managers. You know. um, but right now, like we can actually, you know, get information about like the Chinese government. We can get information about... Um, like all these other agents throughout mm-hmm. whereas like before in those times it was just like the information that the general public got was the propaganda like propagated from the central government of like you know like the Roman Empire which just like had these propaganda campaigns essentially right against like a lot of these um, a lot of like other countries and essentially like in- instilled like a new sense of nationalism um, of course, like, obviously, that's, like, right now, like, there's a proliferation of data, like, people can actually kind of figure out what's going on, but then, like, the, the issue is, like, fake news and everything. Yeah, I would say that as much as the availability of data is a help, it's also a hindrance. For sure. Because there's a lot of 
you know, the, the portions of the population that I would say tend towards individualistic, um, nationalistic views are getting different data. For sure. And I think it's much easier now for uh, decentralized propaganda to be extremely effective. And I think that as ad, ad technologies and uh, personalization in delivery of data yeah. gets more advanced, it becomes easier and easier to like find the people. And so I think that it's true. I, I, I completely agree. Like COVID-19 was a great example of, of collectivization, collective action, but it was, <laughs> it was also in some ways an example of cracks being shown for sure. And so I think that every, every period has its great collective action um, points. The early 20th century, right before World War II, was the m one of the most international, globalistic periods in human history, where all of these, and, you know, it was mainly European countries that, you know, controlled the entire world through their colonies, but they were all working together. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, that's, that's what I was going to say. It's like a very Eurocentric view yeah. of... Yeah, well, it's true. It was. Sure. But, I mean, the major powers were all relatively good friends. Trade flowed everywhere. They were carving up colonies yeah. together. I mean, it wasn't everyone Trade being Trade did divorced. flow everywhere. <laughs> Trade did flow everywhere. It wasn't, it wasn't that everyone was necessarily involved, but there was a lot of collective action. It was for the good of Europe. Sure. But it was a lot of collective action. Then World War One happened. Seemingly, like, you know, it wasn't out of nowhere, but it was... I mean, it's been like 20, 30 years. Yeah. It, it less than that. Yeah. In, in 1910, there was great cooperation. Uh, uh, the Kaiser and the Tsar mm -hmm. and the King of England were together, because um, they were all cousins, but they were together at a wedding, chilling, just a few years before the war broke out. Yeah. And so there was this... There was a lot of collective action. It all falls apart very quickly, because there's always these kinks. And I think that it's true that... You know, it seems more difficult right now, but I think that it could easily break down again. One question I would pose, though, is what would be, like, one central problem that all of the major European powers were facing at that, uh, uh, during that time that would instill such collective action? I don't think that there was a central problem. I think that there was a central mission. Sure of maximizing utility <laughs> maximizing their utility okay. of they weren't saying you know it's not that they didn't face problems but their problems were much smaller their goal was essentially the colonization yeah. of christianization of the world which to them was i mean the highest goal i mean sure. it was as probably in their minds as big as a climate change is a problem for us um in their viewpoint likely would have been and so I think that there's, there's two ways that you can face this collective action. It's either through you have a mission to accomplish or something to fight. World War II, the Allies had something to fight. And in the early 20th century, late 19th century, Europe had something to accomplish. Um, that's, that's at least the way that I would maybe put it. That's interesting. Yeah, that's, that's funny. Like the mission to accomplish, except that's fair, I guess, like, you know propagating like christianity and stuff but it's like it goes back to our blindly following or whatever we said earlier about just like the blindness the blind chase of utility it's mm -hmm. just like i just don't think we as humans like like the hedonic treadmill like a very classic like we're always like it doesn't when we think we've maximized our utility utility goes higher it's truly infinite and just like it's funny because it's just like this like it's 
like this, a lot of this collective action, I guess the way that I've been trying to like internalize it when we're talking about like collectivism versus individualism is like, I think there will be a trend of collectivism. I agree with you, but it's almost like collectivism has gotten to a point where it's strengthening individualism. Yeah. There's a book that mm-hmm. I've been reading called think again by Adam Grant. And it sheds a huge light on just like our inabilities to separate our opinions and our thoughts from our identities. And I think just by having so many, like you said, decentralized like forms of propaganda, really, I feel like there's so many collectives that are all pursuing this greater sense of utility with that utility being mm-hmm. honestly, maybe even out of reach, who knows, but it's just like, since there are so many pockets and so many like, like collective groups, I feel like that further strengthens individualists, which then further strengths, strengthens like this sense of like, I'm always right. And I will never, like, I, I never want to understand what's happening on the other side. So like, that's like almost like where game theory mm-hmm. kind of starts to erode a little bit. Cause it's like, part of it is the knowledge of the other side, but we're getting to a point to where like, we don't even care what's on the other side or we'll hear what's on the other side, but then we'll twist it so that it's favors us and it favors our opinion. So it's like, we're at such an interesting point to where like, since it is such an information influx, it's like collectivism is strengthening individualism so much that we bound it to our personalities and we basically (laughs) in a poor way don't like we're like letting like we're not even thinking about the knowledge of the other side to benefit us it's like we're so blindly attached to our opinions and to our thoughts that like we're like where we even could use game theory we're not because we're not even like letting others people's thoughts like shake ours like we're so bound to what we think that we're just like we're not even using it to our advantage and I think that in many ways, though, I mean, like, Gamester still holds in the fact that, like, what is utility, mm. right? Because I think that if you look at some of these, you mentioned, like, smaller collectives. I think that's a good way of looking at it. These groups where the far right and the far left in America, for example, or in Germany or in the UK, sure. have very different ideas of what is good, what is, what's utility. Like, um, and so the idea that they would collectively go towards something that is utility for both of them because they're so, like you said, bound to their ideas and their opinions, it's almost impossible for them to let go of that and see what's good for everyone because that's not what they think is good for themselves Mm -hmm. because they've been groomed over years and through all this propaganda to think this is what's good for me. You know, it'd be like the similar thing where if you took someone from 1880, I don't know, 1880 UK and brought them to today, and they would think, oh my gosh, you're letting these 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 countries in the third world, which they wouldn't know what that means necessarily, but like <laughs> like run themselves. They would say, how? Why would you do that? You know, they're he would this person would say they're clearly not prepared, which is we would say is preposterous. Mm-hmm. Like you can't like what you are doing is is completely wrong. Like you're denying people uh, their ability to govern themselves. But because he has such different viewpoints, the idea of utility, the idea of what's good is so different. So it's almost impossible to get these separate collectives and opinions to to move in the same direction. I think right now we kind of have, if we imagine every collective as a vector, society moves as the sum of that vector, which sometimes goes nowhere. (laughs) But like, you know, and I think that that's an interesting way of looking at it as well. I was going to say, what if the vectors are pointing in opposite directions? Then society stands still. Maybe that's the best thing. We just need equilibrium. We don't want to move anywhere. Maybe that's what Nash was talking about all along, that Maybe. equilibrium. Yeah. Societal Steve equilibrium. Nash. Steve Nash. Yes, thank you, Steve Nash. <laughs> so I guess, like, how do we push ourselves? Like, I guess, like, this is a question I'm curious. Like, 
I mean, it's, it's so, it'd be great to say like, oh yeah, like I'd love to like hear other people's opinions and internalize them and use those opinions to, you know, further educate myself. Like that's what sounds great on paper, but like we all have strongly hold opinions. We all have this inability to like understand the other side and like use that to basically update our opinions and be okay letting go of our past thoughts and sure. whatever. How do we push ourselves, I guess, to like utilize game theory both internally like, I guess, how do we push ourselves to, like, get the knowledge of the other side and, like, actually eternalize that knowledge and not just consume it and say we consumed it and then keep our opinions and thoughts? Well, according to Steve Nash... No, <laughs> I just like to... See, we're not serious. The basketball star Steve Nash probably... I guess we'll put it in our show notes if he did, but he probably didn't come up with this. I, if he did, I would be shook. I'd be rooting for the Brooklyn Nets for the rest of the playoffs. <laughs> But. Would be uh, would be arguing for tit for tat strategies, hmm. as in like, because if like for example the the other side uses um, the information that they have and they they go for a bad action, then I guess like you also have to go for a bad action. But if they go for a good action, you 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 know reciprocate that with a good action. Um, isn't that just how you get into a civil war, though? I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there. <laughs> but like, I, I think there there will go to there will get to a point where, um, due to just the the idea of like iter like the iterative uh, process, because like the thing the thing with like the the issue we're talking about right now, it's not it's not like a one or done thing. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a constant political conversation that is happening. It doesn't even have to be political. It's just a constant conversation happening between these different small collectives, um, and each time there's a new event, it's a new iteration mm-hmm. of that prisoner's dilemma. Um, and I, I think it's just like, in the at the end of the day, like the math might work out, or it might lead to civil war. We'll see. <laughs> I think but... that something interesting that they was discussed in um, the selfish gene is mm-hmm. there's. Uh, there was a the the most successful strategy I believe, if I remember correctly, was a in in this given example was a tit for tat strategy with a short memory. Mm, sure. Where you say tit for tat, but every third iteration it resets. It resets. Cool. And that way, or it's random. You do a random thing because you know what can happen is you know you. What if they start with a bad move? And you do a bad move, and they do a bad move. If you're both playing tit for tat, then you just go down this rabbit hole. Whereas if you throw in these random good moves, you have the chance of kind of going up. Um, but I think that how do you learn from other people? That that's one of the hardest things. And I think that the only way to really do it is to actually interact with mm, the sure. people of the other collectives I think that's like a, somewhat of a buzzword I think people throw around of like actually experiencing other field people field anthropology <laughs> yeah yeah field anthropology you know? <laughs> you know like actually getting to know people like my exa- I, I mean I grew up in on a farm I didn't have much uh, interaction with you know people from different cultures than me or from different areas uh, you know different different races but when I went to college I was able to interact with bunch of different people and that helps deconstruct any preconceived notions that you might have because you're actually you're making friends with them you're learning from them if you're just talking online i think it's almost impossible to really learn from someone for sure because you in in order to actually have someone's lived experience 
be impactful enough to you for you to change your opinion, you have to trust them a lot. Like, you have to befriend them. You, you have, have to befriend, befriend them, and you have to say, this person is telling me the absolute truth. He's not... This person isn't just um, telling me something, trying to get me on their side or something. Mm-hmm. Sure. They're being honest with me. And that's that takes time. That takes years. And that's what makes it so difficult. That's why these collectives don't mingle too much except at the very edge. Because mm-hmm. it takes so much time, I think, to really build up that trust to have opinion-changing uh, gains of knowledge, I guess. Which is like, because of that reason, it's like, it's so interesting to look how much of a tumultuous year 2020 was. For sure. Because on top of COVID and on top of a, obviously, social justice movement, a historic presidential election, it was all online. We were all inside yeah. and we didn't have the chance to meet people and actually interact with those people. Yeah. So it's like, that further made it worse <laughs> because we didn't have the the chance to even experience it. So, I, I agree with you. And I, I'm curious how, like, I mean, with things starting, I mean, I, maybe since things are opening up again and everyone's, like, so eager to, like, do things in person again, like, maybe we'll see what happens. But, like, I think the pandemic has also shown us how much stuff in the future is going to be online. Like, management consultants is a great example. Like, sure. probably 50% of the costs of travel is going to go away because they're probably not going to fly as much. And like, there's obviously that's just one example, but it's like, I'm curious if there's going to be a trend towards more. I mean, obviously there's going to be a trend towards more online only communication. I wonder how like we continue to grow society and continue to improve when so many things are going to be so online based, decentralized. I don't know. I don't know. No, that is, that is a very tough one. I remember, uh, I remember like, at least for me when I was watching the election go down and, looking at the final numbers, I was just shocked about how close everything was. And it's because, like, first of all, in terms of, like, my physical interactions with people, they're obviously much decreased. But all all my online interactions with people were definitely with people with, like, like-minded, you know, ideologies, as me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, when I was, like, saw, like, over 70 million, I think, people voted for the, the side that lost. <laughs> Not entirely sure how. Actually, uh, <laughs> it's Voldemort. That <laughs> <laughs> over like seventy million people voted for Trump. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, dude, we can't we can't instill fear with not using his name. <laughs> um, just like absolutely, just like baffles me, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's again I, at that moment it baffled me because like I wasn't interacting with these other yeah, as far as you knew, you were at the center of your collective. You didn't know exactly. that the other one existed. In in all reality. You didn't care that no, they existed. You sure. didn't want to learn from them. And even now, maybe you don't want to learn from them. Mm-hmm. I think it's difficult when you look at something. The closer you are to the center of your collective, the further anyone in any other collective feels from your worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where maybe it feels like they're like, you know, they don't know anything. I don't, I don't have anything to learn from them. And that's what makes it really hard. Like Whether it's, I think, in a dangerous direction. Um, or in a different, just like something odd, you know, that you might not have an affiliation with. It's it's just so difficult to like trust that people are being honest with what they believe and not just being, you know, trolling. Trolling, yeah. Sometimes, and that's that's why it's, I think it's hard to learn, especially in American politics these days. Uh, it's like harsh, mm-hmm. but yeah. And so I think we're coming up on time. And so I think the the thing to leave you all with, the listeners, at least the thing I'd like to ponder post once we turn off the recording is like 
that's a great example of because we are so in the epicenter of our collective we can't even imagine trying to get on the other side and understand but yeah it's so easy to think like oh yeah like just learn the other side's opinion use that to repropagate my own opinions and then bolster my knowledge and improve as a person blah 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 it's like how how are you going to actually go on the other side whether it be politically or not and just like learn and understand and let that understanding and being with people and having those conversations grow your own opinions and how are you going to detach your personality from your opinions so that you can grow and utilize game theory and I'd at also, the end of the day maximize utility yeah. not just for yourself <laughs> but for everyone and i want to yeah i'd also like to add like and don't expect it to be a tit for tat no for mm. sure just because you reach out to try to learn doesn't mean they will i think a lot of times you're like oh you should just come and learn from me mm-hmm you know, I'm going to tell you everything about why you should be on my in my collective. And so I think that that's an important thing. You're reaching out for no one's benefit but your own in the hope that you'll maybe inspire other people to do the same. And so that we can get a better understanding as an entire one big collective, which is this. <laughs> uh, to try to move, like Shang-Chi said, to maximize utility. But, yeah, we are close to time, but we do have a, a regularly occurring <laughs> segment, which... Uh, Luke or Shangjie? Shangjie, you're the guest. I think Shangjie should do it. So first off, this was a great first episode with a guest. It Hopefully was. you enjoyed your time. I Hopefully. thought this was very fascinating. I thought we really got in the weeds, and that's the ultimate purpose of this podcast. For I sure. loved it. It was a great conversation. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, for sure. And like Jared mentioned, our irregularly scheduled segment at the end of every episode <laughs> is where Jared has a big brain for history. Oh, so the you, absolute biggest. The absolute biggest, <laughs> the, the absolute hugest. <laughs> and so we're going to ask you to just give Jared a, a person, a time period, a country, a civilization. Just what, what, what do you want to learn more about today? And Jared will probably have a fact about it. Yeah, I well, think well, I'd like to start by saying that Shangji is probably one of the people that could stump <laughs> So we'll see. I, I don't think I'm here to stump you, though. Okay, okay. Um, I will say... Um, might as well just go back to the beginning of the of the podcast of the first historical example that I talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, ancient Greece, Plato, the Battle of Delium or Delium. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce that word. I'm not familiar with this battle. That's fine. Okay. We, can, we can just go with Athens or ancient Greece. Okay. <laughs> one ancient. one fact that you think I wouldn't know. Hmm. That is. A good question, because I know you probably know a lot of the unknown facts. I don't know. My my, <laughs> my knowledge of ancient Greek mythology and just ancient Greece in general might be limited to Percy Jackson. So. Okay. <laughs> I'll start with something that I think is, I guess I think is relatively mainstream knowledge. And I guess if you know, we can keep going on until we find something you don't know. But so Spartans and Thebians... Thebes was a city-state in mm-hmm. Greece that had a, a military unit called the Sacred Band, which was the most elite uh, units. And Spartans, of course, everyone knows, were good fighters. They were also some of the most homosexual people in the history of, I mean, I guess recorded history that we know of. Mm. Whereas most ancient Greek, at least in, in those city-states, it's different everywhere. Because ancient Greece was very diverse. Yeah. Um, you were lovers with your unit that you went to battle with. So your comrades in battle you were lovers with, which was a way to increase uh, morale and make you fight harder to protect the people that you were in love with. 
And uh, the uh, in Sparta, especially, like you didn't have any relations with the woman until you got married. And and even then, that was just to have kids. Yeah. Wow. And so, uh, sounds like Shang Shang knew that one. Yeah, it's. Uh, it was actually I was doing a little bit of a background research into a few of the more interesting relationships in Greek mythology, and like the, that fact came up mm-hmm. as in like the cultural. Yeah. Cultural well, I had no idea. <laughs> Ancient Greece was very big into homosexuality, homosexuality uh, between grown men. Rome was very interested in pedophilia. Ah. Whereas that I do not know. <laughs> older, older men. Okay, well we'll just use that. We'll just go with that. Older Great men fact. would typically take younger men as lovers and uh, mentees. Ah, uh, yes, mentees. And so uh, it, there's actually um, a lot of uh, fun that's actually made of Caesar by his troops. So after Caesar returns from Gaul, he gets a triumph. And a triumph in ancient Rome was like a giant parade you got. But typically, the soldiers would sing crude songs about their general as they marched through the streets. Interesting. And one of the things they sang in Caesar's song was how he... It was basically insinuating that he played the girl's part in a relationship with this older man. This this senator or something. And so it was pretty typical... For older Roman men to take young boys as lovers and then also that was a way for those young boys to like increase their social status but very might very much change your view on, <laughs> on Roman society now it wasn't throughout all of Roman history because that's so long but for sure that was a common thing there wow well, so I bet you're stumped now now I'm stumped <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But, but yeah, yeah, like I said, great recording. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, no, we will sure. definitely have. We need to have you back on the podcast again soon. We need to have just for guests. audio quality alone. You guys <laughs> yeah. might notice everything sounds better. That's because Shang Jay knows what he's doing. Yeah, uh, I learned a thing or two I, about. I'm a fan. I dabble. I dabble. Yeah, <laughs> I learned a thing or two about frequencies. We might have to start using GarageBand, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. We're we're up in our our podcast game, listeners. Oh, well, we're at least for this episode. We'll see what happens in next. <laughs> but yeah, well, I think that our website is at least partially live. You should be able to go to it. Uh, what is it, Jared? What's it's the website? unpromptedpod.com. Yes. Just and spelled out all lowercase. Why would a listener want to go on this website? You can see recent episodes, mm. our favorite episodes. Mm. You can read a paragraph about Luke and I mm. that was written quickly. Or even, and most importantly, give feedback. Feedback. If you want to say thanks... That's the place to do it. it if you have a recommended topic, if you have a recommended question for the infrequently scheduled uh, session, would yes, yes, <laughs> session. Let's just go with it. Uh, we'll go with that, or anything else you want to say. Uh, you can do that at our at our website, um, which is the unpromptedpod.com. Cool. So, Can't wait to hear from you. Thanks again, Shang Jay. Appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. My Thank pleasure. You. Talk to you guys later. Bye. See you. Bye.